If you have a Bible, open it up. If not, there's one right wherever you're sitting. You can take it. Find Ecclesiastes chapter 9. I know that some of you are ready to be done with Ecclesiastes. But I have good news. This is a very encouraging sermon called, Death is Coming for Everyone. (laughs) So, let's talk about Ecclesiastes 9. Derek Kidner says this, and this ought to be a little bit hopeful for you, before the positive emphasis of the final three chapters can emerge, we have to make sure that we shall be building on nothing short of hard reality. And so what we're doing, what we're talking about in chapter 9, as you think about the book of Ecclesiastes, really is one last extended serious conversation about the reality of death. And the last three chapters, when we get to 10 and 11 and 12, they talk about death. So we're not done talking about death, but death is not the focus and the emphasis, uh, even though it's still present in the conversation. So a little bit, a little bit of optimism is coming, but uh, tonight a little bit more realism. And I've told you throughout this series that the book is not pessimistic. It's really not pessimistic. People think Ecclesiastes is a pessimistic book. It's not pessimistic. It is realistic. And it's so realistic that for people like you and I who live in an age that is very not realistic, it feels pessimistic. But it's a a real book. It's not a pessimistic negative book. So we're going to think about death tonight as we get into Ecclesiastes 9. A couple of weeks ago, I preached a funeral for my wife's grandma, uh, Emma Souter. My wife's grandparents attend here. Uh, her granddad and her grandmother, they're members here at Emmanuel, and her grandma passed away. And I preached her funeral. And after the funeral, I was standing right up here at the front, and my kids came up to me and were visiting with me. And one of my middle girls, I don't remember which one it was, if it was Noelle or Amelia, but one of them standing by me after the service was shocked when she looked at the collar of my shirt. And inside the collar of my shirt, right here on the trim, I have skulls, not on this shirt, but on the shirt that I was wearing. And she said, Dad, what in the world are you doing with skulls on your shirt? And I thought, well, that's a pretty good question. And the answer is, when you're six foot four, you're not freakishly tall, but you're tall enough that you can't just go to the store and buy stuff that they have at Dillard's or wherever you buy stuff, Target. You just can't find stuff that's the right length, quite the right size, so you order things online. And I have found a company online called Twillery. They sell shirts that are not as baggy as a tent and have sleeves that are long enough. And so I've ordered some of these shirts. And one of the shirts I ordered when I got it, not paying a whole lot of attention online, I'll just put it up on the screen for you to see, it has trim in the collar and on the sleeves, and it has these skulls on it. And I got this shirt in the mail, and I thought, well, that's odd. I don't have any shirts like this. And then I thought to myself, I kind of like it. This is pretty good. I kind of like it. It makes me feel like I have street cred or something like that, wearing skulls when I'm preaching. And then, if you want to know the honest truth, I began to channel my inner Puritan. 
Here's the reality. The Puritans were a group of people lived in uh, the 16th century in England. They wanted to purify the Church of England from doctrine and practices that they found unbiblical. And the Puritans are remembered today for all sorts of things. I think they should mostly be remembered for good things. Many times they get a bad rap and a bad label. But one of the things that is common in Puritan writing and culture is the repetition of the phrase, memento mori, which is a Latin phrase that means remember death. Remember death. And they would put it on their tombstones with pictures of skulls. And they would stamp it sometimes on the inside of their Bibles with pictures of skulls. And if that's not enough for you, many times, we know this from artwork, on their desks they would have real skulls sitting on their desk. And they would call it, it's a memento mori, it's a reminder of death. It's basically like reading the book of Ecclesiastes with an image. It's reminding yourself that someday you're going to die. And so I have this shirt now, and I feel like I should have worn it tonight. Would have been appropriate. I didn't. I didn't remember that this was the passage we were on this morning, uh, as I had prepared this several weeks ago. So, uh, memento mori. Some of you are thinking, we need a new church. Our pastor's lost his mind, and the Puritans, these guys are creepy. Let me just tell you, this is pretty tame in comparison to what some people have done throughout church history. I'll show you some pictures, and I know these are small, but you can Google these and you can find these images. Just search church with human bones. There are churches all over the world decorated with the bones of people who are part of that church who have died. And I'm not talking like just one, you know, cross X and skull of femurs. I'm talking elaborate decorations. Why would they do this? Maybe you think this is a little bit morbid, it's a little bit over the top, it's too much. But the underlying reason is these people wanted to remember death is coming. And we ought to live in light of the reality that death is coming for all of us. So, here's the big idea of Ecclesiastes 9. Death is certain and life is unpredictable which sounds very negative, then the preacher tells us we should enjoy the gift of life. That's his logic. It may not be our logic, but that's the logic of Ecclesiastes, especially Ecclesiastes 9. Death is certain. Life is unpredictable. So we should enjoy the gift of life. So if your Bible's open, let me just tell you how we're going to approach this chapter. First, we're going to look at Ecclesiastes 9 one to six, and then we're going to skip a few verses, and we're going to go down and talk about 11 to 18, and then we're going to circle back and talk about the verses right there in the middle. Really, the verses right in the middle are the hope and the heart of the passage, and the Hebrews like to write in this way. We're Americans. We like to write in one direction, and we build towards a crescendo, but many times the Hebrew people, the Hebrew prophets, the Hebrew poets would put the main point right in the middle. And so we're going to start at the beginning, go to the end, and then circle back to the middle. Let's read Ecclesiastes 9, 1 to 6. Preacher says this, But this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise 
and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and as he who swears is, as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil, and all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all, also that the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. So according to the preacher, the same event happens to all people, and that event is death. It says that clearly in verse 2. All people are going to experience this, and you can read the, the contrast that he draws out, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the evil, the clean and the unclean, those who sacrifice and those who don't. That would be those who are religious and practice their faith, and those who are not religious and don't practice it, the good people, the sinners, those who keep their oaths, those who don't even make an oath. If you're reading the message, it might say Texans and Okies. No difference on either side of the Red River. If you're living in Odessa, you might say Baptists and Methodists. doesn't matter which side of university you're on. Same event happens to all, and that same event is death. To quote one of my favorite preachers, one out of one dies. Pretty good odds. The universality of death leads some to question the character of God. I think this is what the preacher's driving at in verse 1. It's an odd verse. The translation is a bit awkward. He says in verse 1 that the righteous and the wise and their deeds and all of it are in the hand of God. God is sovereign over all things. Then he says whether it's love or hate, man doesn't know. And he immediately begins to talk about death. And I think what the preacher's reflecting on is that from a human perspective, you look at life on the earth and you say, Good people and bad people get cancer. Good people and bad people have heart attacks. People who go to church and people who don't go to church have tragedies that fall into their life and unexpected things happen. And if you believe that there is a higher power, you're left sort of scratching your heads and you're left wondering, is this higher power loving or is he spiteful? Because if you don't have scripture to guide your thinking and all you're looking at is the human experience where everyone dies and suffering is a reality for everyone you're sort of left wondering I, I don't know what's going on here I don't understand the rhyme or the reason to what's happening in people's lives so some may question the character of God the preacher insists when you get to verse 3 that death should be seen as an evil that is the result of human sin he very clearly says, this is an evil. It's a bad thing that death has reign over our lives on this earth. 
That's not a good thing according to the preacher. It's an evil done under the sun that the same event happens to everyone. This is not a a part of God's original good creation, but it's an evil that has been introduced. And he clarifies that the hearts of the children of man are full of evil. And madness is in their hearts while they live. And then after that, they go to the dead. Let me just give you a few verses you can trace out on your own. We've got a lot to talk about, so we're not going to trace these out. I would just remind you that Ecclesiastes is not the first book in the Bible. Nor is it the last book in the Bible. And if you want to make sense of what he's saying in Ecclesiastes 9.3, you really have to go back to the book of Genesis, and you've got to read Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve sin against God, rebel against God, and death and sickness and pain and sorrow enter the world. And you've got to wrestle with Genesis, excuse me, Genesis 6.5, that says the Lord God looked down on mankind, and all of their intentions of their heart were only evil continually. That's what the preacher says here. The hearts of the children of man are full of evil. We've talked about depravity recently on a Sunday morning. That's what the preacher's talking about. That's what Moses is talking about in Genesis 6. And if you want to trace this through for the full biblical picture, you go to the book of Romans. And you say Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3 is the most comprehensive explanation of human sin in the whole Bible. It takes all these threads from the Old Testament and draws them to the conclusion that we're all sinners Left to ourselves, we want nothing to do with God, and the consequence for our sin is death. And Romans 5 makes it clear that sin and evil and wickedness entered into the world through Adam's disobedience, through one man's action. All of this death and suffering has entered into the world. So you can trace these verses out on your own and make some of the connections. The preacher says this, Life is better than death because the living know they will die. Now, that's not American logic. To American people, you read that and you say, that's a nonsensical statement. We agree with the part that to be living is better than to be dead, maybe, as Americans. But notice what the preacher's reasoning is in verse 4 and verse 5. He says, he who is joined with all the living, has hope for a living dog, better than a dead lion, for, verse 5. Notice the word for. That's an explanatory word. It's introducing an explanation. Why is it better to be a living dog than a dead lion? Why is it that the ones who are joined to the living have hope? For, here's the reason, verse 5. The living know that they will die. While you're alive, you know that death is coming, it's certain. And while you're alive, living with that knowledge, you have time to deal with your sin problem. The Bible says in Romans 2 that it is the patience of God, not punishing our sin immediately, instantly, that is intended to lead us to repentance. Knowing that we're sinners, knowing that a day of judgment is coming, knowing that there will be a reckoning, knowing that we will have to give an account to be numbered amongst the living, you have hope because that means you have the opportunity to repent of your sin and to put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 2, verse 4. So that's the first section. Let's jump down and look at the last section. 
in chapter 9, beginning in verse 11. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. I've also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with a few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet, no one remembered that poor man. But, I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. This is a challenging section. The preacher starts to go down one road and he gives you an exception and he goes down this road and he comes back, course corrects, and he's sort of all over the place. So we'll try to make sense of it. According to the preacher, everyone is subject to time and misfortune. When he says time and chance happen to all, time happens to all, you understand one of the key phrases in the book is under the sun. We're on the clock. Your life is short. Your life is brief. It's not about a place. It's about a time. Life under the sun is, as time is ticking away. When the English translations say time and chance happen to all, chance may not be the best translation there. It's a difficult concept to communicate the book of Ecclesiastes is perfectly clear that God is sovereign over everything. And if God is sovereign over everything, there is no chance. And if you want to think about this philosophically, I'll recommend a book to you. It's the very first book I ever read by a man named R.C. Sproul. And the book is called Not a Chance. And he talks about a naturalistic, secular view of cosmology that says there is no creator, everything just happened, it was random, it was chance. And he traces that through logically and says chance is actually not a thing. So the naturalistic, secular person is saying that everything exists because of a non-thing. It's the very first book that I ever read as a high school student that I read a chapter and said, I have no idea what that means. I think I need to read it again. And I had to go back, and I had to go back, and I had to go back, and I had to think. It's a brilliant book. It's a helpful book. Clearly, God, in the book of Ecclesiastes, is sovereign over all things. We talked about that in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. There's a time for everything, under, not under the sun, under heaven. God is sovereign over all of the things that happen in our lives and the times that they happen. Here's what we're dealing with in chapter 9. Life is unpredictable. From our standpoint, not from God's standpoint, but from our standpoint, life is unpredictable. Verse 11 is one of the oddest verses in the whole book, one of the most vexing, frustrating verses in the whole book. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift. Fastest person doesn't always win the race, nor is the battle to the strong. 
person with the biggest army doesn't always win the battle. Nor is bread to the wise. The wise person doesn't always have enough. And riches are not always to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. I quoted my dad this last Sunday. I'll quote him again. My dad used to tell me growing up all the time, it's better to be lucky than good. Better to be lucky than good. Sometimes that's true, right? When you hear that sort of thing from your parents growing up, you think, oh, my dad, he came up with something really smart there. My dad didn't come up with this. I Googled it this week, and I had my heart crushed. Bill Coleman did not come up with this line. Best I can tell, this line goes back to a baseball player named Lefty Gomez. I've never heard of him. He's a fascinating character, Lefty Gomez. He's a Hall of Fame player, played in the 30s and the 40s. Uh, his nickname, he had two nicknames. One was Goofy Gomez, and one was El Gufo. He was sort of like Yogi Berra before Yogi Berra came around. I don't know. Lefty Gomez. One time, he was playing a baseball game. I'll just tell you one Lefty Gomez story. One time he's playing a baseball game and it was foggy. And this was before everyone was worried about people getting hurt. Remember a previous age, you just played things and nobody worried about anything. It was foggy. He couldn't see. No one could see. And he came up to bat and he stepped one foot in the batter's box and he took out a book of matches and he lit a match and he struck the match and he held it up. And the umpire said, lefty. Do you really think that that match is going to help you see the ball coming in this fog? And Lefty said, no, but I hope it helps the pitcher see me. So, pretty good wisdom. That's just free from Lefty Gomez. Sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. Now, here's the reality. Insurance companies always come out ahead because they work off of actuarial tables. And casinos are not building those buildings because they give all their money away. They come out ahead. The deck is stacked in their favor, whatever the game is. And Proverbs in the Bible are generally true. That's why we call it proverbial wisdom. They're generally true. They're true enough that you can say, you know, this is how it usually works. But the preacher is reminding us as we think about death, the certainty of death, and the uncertainty, the unpredictability, unpredictability of life, that sometimes things get turned upside down. Sometimes a lazy fool wins the Powerball and ends up with a lot of money. Sometimes a rotten person has a second aunt die in Vermont and he inherits an estate. Sometimes drug dealers and criminals actually get away with it. And they don't meet justice. And they don't fall into their own pit that they've dug. Like the book of Proverbs says, the wicked will fall into his own pit. Well, generally that's true. Your folly and your wickedness will eventually catch you up in it. You'll be caught in your own pit or your own net, but not always. Life is unpredictable. Long shots win the Kentucky Derby. Shepherd boys kill giants. Slaves walk out of Egypt with treasure. Life is unpredictable. Next, those who do great deeds will be forgotten. This is not the most encouraging thought in Ecclesiastes, but it's true. 
There's a little parable in verse 13, 14, 15. This city was being besieged and there was a poor man and whatever happened, he came up with a scheme that saved the day and saved the city and everyone was so thankful and so happy and then they forgot him. And we've talked about this in the book of Ecclesiastes. Even when we remember the great deeds that people do, we forget them. And we might attach a name to their great deed, but we forget the person. And so it may be that for years and years and years, they talked about this brilliant plan that so-and-so came up with. But that's what they talked about, the plan and the salvation. They didn't talk about him. They forgot him. The preacher says in verse 5, up in the top part of the passage, the living know they will die, the dead know nothing, they have no more reward. The memory of them is forgotten. How many generations will it take for you to be completely forgotten by people who live on the earth? Probably fewer than you'd like to admit. For all of us. Those who do great deeds will be forgotten. Lastly, wisdom is valuable. It is valuable. But it can be destroyed by just a little sin. One of the things that I love about Ecclesiastes that is so real and it's so balanced and it's so nuanced, it doesn't fall into just sort of cliches and stereotypical ways of thinking. You think about life is short, hebel hebel, vanity vanity, it's all meaningless, it's all going by this quick, however you want to translate the word. You may be prone to say, well, we just ought to throw wisdom out the window. We're just here for this long. What does it matter anyways? But Ecclesiastes consistently says, no, you should be a wise person. You do need wisdom. It is more powerful than an army. It does make a difference in your life. We'll talk about that more next week. But it has limits. Wisdom has limits. You need it, and it's valuable, and it's powerful, but wisdom has limits. Limits. It does not allow you to control the future. It doesn't mean that all your questions will be answered. It doesn't mean that you're never going to wrestle with things in life. It's valuable, but it has limits. There's great wisdom in verse 18. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. It just takes a little bit of foolishness and evil to mess up a lot of good and a lot of wisdom. It just takes a little bit of folly and evil to bring consequences in your life that don't just go away with the snap of a finger. That's true for an individual. Decisions that you make. Your parents used to warn you about this when you were a child. This could go on your permanent record. It's terrifying for about a year in first grade, and you realize there is no permanent record. Then you became a grown-up, and you thought, well, now I do have a permanent record, and this could go on there. It's one little mistake, wrong place, wrong time, wrong person, foolish decision, one wicked decision. This principle holds for a family as well. One sinner destroys much good. It holds true for a church. It holds true for a nation. Just a true biblical principle. Wisdom is valuable, but it can be destroyed by just a little bit of sin. Let's look at the middle section of verses. 
Let's read 7, 8, 9, and 10. Go, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white, let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life. Notice that's our word, vain life, hebel life. And we've said the word literally means smoke, mist, vapor, something that's brief. And you can see how that verse sounds differently if you translate it as brief. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your short, brief, fleeting, passing life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life. And in your toil, there's that word toil, one of our key words. What does man gain for all of his toil under the sun? Toil is all the things that you do. In your toil at which you toil under the sun, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Let's try to make sense of those verses. According to the preacher, we're called to actively enjoy God's gifts. And it wouldn't be true to the text. It wouldn't be strong enough to say we're called to enjoy God's gifts. I've added in this adverb, actively enjoy God's gifts. Because in verse 7... That very first word in English, go, is a command. It's telling you, set out with intentionality to do this thing. It's not going to just happen without intentionality and with thought and without planning and without purpose. Go and eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has approved what you do. You understand that when it says God has approved what you do, we interpret the Bible with the Bible. It doesn't mean that God will approve of anything you do in life. It doesn't mean you can go out and sin and God will say, hey, I approve of that. If you look at what he's calling us to, eat your bread with joy. If you go down the road to Jersey Girl and you order five pizzas and you eat them with joy doesn't mean God approves of that. And when it says, drink your wine with a merry heart, you leave church tonight, you pick up three cases of Miller Lite on the way home, you drink them before you go to bed. It doesn't mean God approves of you being a drunkard or a glutton. But it is saying that God approves of you enjoying your life. The book of Ecclesiastes is very strong about this. In fact, I was reading ahead today looking at chapter 11, which is a few weeks out, and it says it in an even stronger way in chapter 11 that we are called to be people of joy. According to the preacher, we're called to actively enjoy God's gifts. In one of our previous lessons, several weeks back before spring break, we had a big idea that said something like this, life on earth is not gain, but it is a gift. Our gain is not to be found in our lives under the sun, but our lives under the sun, brief as as though they may be, they're a gift from God and we are called to enjoy them. Look what he says in verse 8. Let your garments always be white, let not oil be lacking on your head. Most commentators say that that verse is contrasting white garments and oil on your head with sackcloth and ashes. 
Now, in the Bible, is there a time for sackcloth and ashes? There is. When Esther and Mordecai were praying for their people, it was a time for sackcloth and ashes. But at the end of the book, when they were saved and delivered from Haman and the threats against their lives, did they stay in the sackcloth and ashes? No. They celebrated. In fact, they invented a brand new holiday to celebrate. And Ecclesiastes is saying, look, there may be a time for sackcloth and ashes. But your whole life should not be sackcloth and ashes. You should not be miserable most of the time. You should be joyful most of the time. That's the call of Ecclesiastes. I don't know if Christians always do a good job of this. Being joyful. Rather than pick on us, I'll just look back on church history. It's always easy to see bad examples in other people. And you can, by implication, think about your own life. Very early in church history, there were a group of people who were not very joyful. In fact, they were angry and disgusted with the world. And they thought it was gross and terrible and going to hell in a handbasket. And they basically said, we're out. We're out. We're done. We hate living here. People are terrible. It could not get any worse than it is. And they said, we're moving to the desert. So they moved out into the desert, and they said, we're leaving all that trash. We're going to go out and live in the desert. And if we can get physically away from it, they forgot, Ecclesiastes 9, verse 3, that the hearts of the children of man are full of evil. They took their hearts with them. But they thought, if we can just physically get away from it, we'll be holy. So they went and they lived out in the desert. Problem is, all the people in the city wanted to see the holy people, so they came out into the desert to see them and to talk to them and to ask them questions and to bother them. And so these desert monks said, well, we've moved horizontally away from evil. Didn't work. Now we're going to move vertically away from evil. So they built towers. They built things called stylites. And the stylite monks were monks who lived out in the desert, up at the top of a tower. And I'll show you a few pictures of these guys, just art. Out in the desert, up on a tower. Now, the pictures, they kind of look comical. Like, you look at that, and you perspective's off, and it's not, you know, great. But these towers, some of these towers are still standing in parts of the world, and they look something like this. They're out in the middle of the desert. Put this next picture up for me. I'm going to live up there. These guys would live at the top of the tower, out in the middle of the desert. They'd eat like a date a week and have a glass of water every couple of days. And they would withhold all pleasures from themselves. And they thought, if we can get away and get up and not enjoy anything, we'll be more holy. We'll reach some higher plane of spirituality. There's certainly an aspect to the Christian life. Jesus would describe it as deny yourself. Take up your cross daily. Follow me. But the Bible also warns us in places like Colossians and in the pastoral epistles to beware of people who say that the key to holiness is being miserable 
and not enjoying God's gifts. Beware of those people who say, oh, no, 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 you can't get married. If you want to be holy, you can't get married. Beware of those people who say, if you want to be holy, you can't eat that. Beware of these people who make up all these phony, man-made rules about what you can't do if you really want to be holy. And James 1 gives us the positive aspect of the error of asceticism. And James 1 says, you know what? Every gift is from God, the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or change due to shadow. Enjoy those gifts. Receive them as gifts and be thankful for them. Now, what Ecclesiastes would warn us of, what the Bible would warn us of, is don't turn God's gifts into God's. Don't make sex your God. You'll be a slave. Don't make your family your God. They will let you down and disappoint you. You will expect things from them that they are not capable of giving you. You will end up bitter and angry and disappointed. Do not take a gift and turn it into a God. Now the far other extreme of making one of God's gifts a God would be to say, well then I won't have anything to do with it at all. I'll move out to the desert. That picture pastor showed us looked empty and I'll take up residence up on that stylite out in the desert. I'll build one. Kind of look like Monahan's up there. I'll go over to Monahan's, build me a stylite up there out in the middle of nowhere. I get away from everything. Enjoy God's gifts. Be a joyful person. So let me give you a few more thoughts as we close. We should find joy in feasting. That's eating, drinking, feasting. We should find joy in marriage. And we should find joy in work. All that's right out of Ecclesiastes 9, 7, 8, 9, and 10. That's the imagery he, he brings up. Eating and drinking, marriage, and work. Now, one of the things I've told you almost every week when we study Ecclesiastes is that this is not the first book in the Bible. And if you want to understand it, it's a difficult book. You've got to understand some of the stuff that came before it. Can you think of any story in the Bible before this that involved food and drink and marriage and work? How about Genesis 2? God creates human beings and he puts them on a tower in the middle of the desert. No, in a garden. And he says, you can have all this food. It's all yours. Not this one, but all, it's all yours. And he said, you know what? It's not good, Adam, that you be alone, so I'm going to make a woman who's suitable for you to help you. Marriage. He, he makes marriage right there in Genesis 2. And he gives them work, work to do. He says to Adam and Eve, you need to keep the garden. It's not going to keep itself. You need to keep it. Work with your hands. And then a little while later, he tells Adam, you need to name all the animals. Let's work with your mind. You're going to need to look at them, think about them, study them. What makes them unique? What makes them similar? Name them. Work. You have food. You have marriage. You have work. It's all in Genesis 2. Then you come to Genesis 3. Genesis 3 describes the fall of mankind, the entrance of death, and the curse of God. So it all goes wrong in Genesis 3. There's rebellion and sin, separation. The people that God created to be with him have to leave his presence. 
God places a curse on the ground. He says that their toil and their work will be marked by thorns and thistles and sweat. And they came from the dust and before long you're going to go back to the dust. Won't be long. Romans 8 describes the fallout of this and says the whole world, including human beings, is groaning, waiting for the day of redemption, which brings us to Revelation 21 and 22. Revelation 21 22 describes the redemption of God's people, the gift of eternal life, and the blessing of God. So I just want to acknowledge one odd verse, verse 10. Some of you may be scratching your heads. Ecclesiastes 9.10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. That's the wisdom of your parents saying, if you're going to do a thing, do it to your best of your ability. If you're going to do a thing, something is going to fall under your toil, do it as good as you can do it. That's a New Testament principle. Paul tells one of his churches, when you work, you ought to work as if you're working for the Lord, not to please man, but as if you're working for the Lord himself. So he says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. There's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you're going. So let's make sense of this. Sheol is a Hebrew word that literally means the grave or the place of the dead. And we're not going to trace this all the way through the Old Testament and into the New Testament. You can do that on your own or I can point you in in the direction of some resources that will do that. This is the point I want to make. In the Old Testament, some things that the Bible teaches are less clear than they are in the New Testament. The identity of the Messiah. Is that more clear in the Old Testament? No, it's less clear and it becomes more clear in the New Testament. One of the things that's less clear in the Old Testament than it is in the New as God continues to speak to His people is what happens in the afterlife. And in the Hebrew mind, there is a very strong finality to death in the grave. And there's a little bit of ambivalence, meaning a little bit of uncertainty about what's going to come after that. Now, what do we know from the book of Ecclesiastes? We know that the book of Ecclesiastes says that God is eternal. He's outside of time, chapter 3. We know, Ecclesiastes 3, that God has set eternity in man's heart so that he can't discern the beginning from the end, but that we have this sense that, no, there was something before me, and there's probably going to be something after me. I'm probably not the end-all, be-all of what's going on here. So we have this sense of eternity. And Ecclesiastes is clear that there is a day of judgment coming, a day of reckoning, where wrongs will be set right after this life. There is the idea in the Old Testament that when God's people die, they're gathered to their people. And all of this becomes more clear in the New Testament and these ideas get fleshed out a little bit more in the idea of heaven and the presence of God and eternal life. So let me just give you this quote from David Gibson. I know that doesn't answer all your questions about Sheol, but the preacher is just kind of ambivalent about it. When you die, that's it. You have hope when you're marked with the living, but when you die, that's it. It's too late for thought, knowledge, wisdom in the place that you're going. Gibson says this, the preacher wrote this book to smash into tiny pieces our idea that we can be like God. We aspire to have it all, know it all, do it all, achieve it all, be happy forever, have all the answers, never be left scratching our head, and be remembered for all time. Does that sound like what Americans want? 
That sums it up, doesn't it? That's what we hope for. But what guarantee is there that we won't go under a bus tomorrow? If you knew what would happen to you tomorrow, how would you live today? That's the whole point of Ecclesiastes. The life you have today comes from God's hand as a gift. It's not gain, but it's a gift. You have it for a short while, and one day God will call time and take it back. Enjoy life with your wife today because tomorrow she may be gone or you might be. Ecclesiastes is not the first book in the Bible. It's also not the last book in the Bible. We read earlier from Revelation 21 and 22. Genesis 2 talks about food and marriage and work. And Ecclesiastes 9 is saying while you're here, in your brief time under the sun, you should enjoy these gifts from God. Food, drink, life, work. You should enjoy them. You shouldn't make them ultimate. You shouldn't build your hope on them. But you should receive them and enjoy them as gifts from God. And the Bible describes in Revelation 21, if you were listening earlier, it describes in the end feasting. God's people will be in a place with the tree of life and the river of the water of life. And God will give freely to his people that they'll eat and be satisfied. The Bible describes a wedding at the end. It's not the kind of wedding we think about, but it's a wedding of the bridegroom and his bride, the Lord Jesus Christ, coming down with this new Jerusalem prepared like a bride. He's going to be together with his people. He's going to be united with his people. There's this idea of, of work and toil and God's people will be living not just on a cloud floating around, but on a new earth with new responsibilities. And the curse that we read about in Genesis 3 is turned into blessing. Here's the reality in Ecclesiastes 9. Death is coming for everyone. Death is coming for everyone. But Ecclesiastes is not the last book in the Bible. And Revelation 21 and 22 is holding out hope to you, saying, death is coming for everyone, but life is coming for God's people. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for Ecclesiastes. We're grateful for honesty, for realism, for words that are, in many ways, difficult for us to take in and process and think about. So much of this book is just uh, contrary to the wisdom of our world and the wisdom uh, of this age. So, Father, we pray for ears to hear uh, the truths of this book. And those of us in this room are counted among the living, which means we have hope. We know that we will die, but today, tonight, right now, we have time uh, to settle the question of our eternity. What a great promise you've given us that there will be feasting for your people. And there will be a marriage that your people are a part of. There will be work and toil and activity. And the curse and all of the death and sorrow and sadness and suffering that comes along with it will be rolled back. And there will be blessing and peace for your people. Father, I pray for those who are here tonight who have never put their faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that they would 
reckon honestly with the reality that they will die and that they would cling and run to the hope that is offered to them in the gospel of Jesus. Lord, be honored uh, in our lives as we leave this place. We pray that uh, the book of Ecclesiastes would not uh, pass out of our thinking or our living as we leave. We pray that we would be people who apply these truths to our lives. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.